Well, good morning. Would you join me in opening up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2? Way up front in the Bible, if you want to use a Blue Pew Bible, it's easy to find. It's on page 2. And it's as crazy as this seems to most of us. It's December 1st. Thanksgiving's come and gone. There's snow in the forecast. We are often running in this Advent season. And as Caden, uh, he prayed for our Thanksgiving meal. And he finished his prayer with these words. And Lord, Christmas is coming. <laughs> in your name we pray. Amen. Just in case he forgets, Caden reminded him for all of us. Um, but we begin a new Advent sermon series. We have finished Philippians last week. Um, and as you have already seen and heard throughout the service this morning, we are doing a deep dive on this topic of peace. The creative team was in here for hours yesterday, decorating the stage, just really creating a beautiful atmosphere for us in this Advent season. And, um, but I know if you're, if you're new to church in general, if you're new to grace in particular, you might have a question as you hear this word thrown around, like, what is Advent. Or if you were like me, kind of growing up in the church, you always kind of knew Advent meant Christmas time, but you maybe didn't actually know what is Advent. And so AJ's video that he uh, put together for us, really helpful, um, kind of shed some light on that. But to, to start, at its simplest form, Advent means coming. It means arrival. And so if you talk about a season of Advent... We have these four Sundays before Christmas Day, which is a season of anticipation of what is coming. And if you look back in church history, there's no kind of exact date when Advent became a pretty prominent part of the church calendar, uh, but we know it was being practiced as early as the 5th century. And its intent, which is ironic in our fast-paced world, especially in this season, but its intent was for the church to slow down. Can you imagine that? to slow down in these four Sundays before Christmas Day and identify with the reality of anticipating Christ's arrival. Um, but what's common, uh, I would say, misconceived about the season, that's always just kind of this reenactment of Israel awaiting the coming of the Messiah, the Savior. And, and it's part that, but it's not only that. Advent also means that we as a church, as we stand at this period of redemptive history, that we are still waiting for Jesus Christ. We are now anticipating the return of the king who will fulfill his mission to rule and reign over his kingdom. And, and if you've um, been here the last few years, you might have noticed a kind of multi-year theme we've had here at Grace Church with Advent. We're, we're in kind of year four of a four-year mini-series. You see, there's these four virtues that always get associated with Advent. Again, A.J. mentioned it. Hope, love, joy, and peace. If you go back, 2016, we spent all of Advent on hope. 2017, we did love. Last year, 2018, we did joy. And now, amazingly, we finish with peace. And the foundational common thread running through all these virtues is how they become fully realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And, and we'll see that each week leading up to Christmas Eve. But the, the foundational common thread um, that, that I find that's fascinating through all these virtues is that pretty much everybody universally loves these things, whether you're in a church or not in a church. Anywhere you look, people want hope. People desire love and joy. And it seems especially peace, regardless of your worldview, 
And if you go across the board, everybody talks about peace. If you go to um, Eastern religions like Buddhism, it's held in high regard. In fact, the fundamental goal of Buddhism, do you know what it is? Peace. And yet this is something on the totally end of the other spectrum, but by what you might call secular humanists. An overriding peace is their desire that covers all things. In town here, there's a Unitarian church, the Unitarian Church of Ridgewood. If you go to their front page of their website, the front page says that their primary goal as a society is peace for the world. You go to Islam and trying to distance themselves from associations with radical terrorism, uh, they have been making the case that Islam is a religion of peace when rightly understood and practiced. So, okay, you got the religious, they talk about peace. You got the secular humanists, they talk about peace. Everybody wants it. And yet, you know what's so clearly lacking in our world? Peace. John prayed about a lot of what we feel at a really deep level. We have a desire for peace amongst countries at war or on the brink of war. We have a desire for peace in our own country amongst groups of people that are supposed to be on the same team and yet just tear each other down at every opportunity. We desire peace in our schools for our children. We want peace in our neighborhoods. Man, we want peace in our homes. And maybe most desperately, we want a peace of mind. You see, peace, it's fully wanted by all and yet fully experienced by none. And maybe, just maybe, it's that People, all people everywhere have this innate desire for peace, but cannot attain it by simply wanting it. Maybe it's out of our control. All right, enough setup. Let's get into the word. This morning, I have one overarching goal to kick off our Advent season, um, that all people everywhere have this innate desire for peace, but we differ on why we don't have it. And if we're going to differ on why we don't have it, then we're going to differ on how we should get it. So we got to go back to the beginning. Why is there a need for peace? We're going to start in Genesis chapter 2. We're going to read verses 4 through 9 and then 15 to 25. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and the mist was going up from the land, it was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skip down to verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. 
The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, one of his ribs closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Peace is a, and in many ways, is the major theme of God's big story in the Bible, cover to cover. That this book is not a collection of stories that was compiled after the fact. It was one big story written over thousands of years by dozens of human authors and one single divine author. And the Hebrew word for peace, Hebrew being the language the Old Testament was written in, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Literally means wholeness. And harmony. The best definition I've seen of shalom was written by a guy named Dan Taylor. It's going to be on the screen. This is shalom. All things in their created place, doing what they were created to do in loving relationship with their creator. This is how God designed his world. This is the theme of God's big story. The creation of shalom. Then the fall of it. And then the redemption of it. And then finally, the restoration of Shalom. That will be our outline for this morning. We're taking a big look picture at peace and Shalom in the Bible. So we start with the creation of Shalom. Uh, The first few chapters in Genesis are in many ways the most important chapters in the Bible to really know and understand. Because it shapes and it molds and provides the foundation for everything that comes after it. And so I think there is good reason, really good reason, for every believer, not just the pastors, not just theologians, but every believer to have a very firm grasp on Genesis 1, 2, and 3, because it builds the foundation for everything. I remember this always stuck in my head, so I had AJ go kind of retrieve the video of, uh, we're not going to watch it, but Andy Steen taught a class here at Grace Church about Genesis like a few years ago, I think four years ago. I remember in his kind of video promoting it, he wrote that Genesis, or he said, Genesis is a book of origins. Get the origins of God, of the universe, of humans, of marriage, of sex, of work, and sin, and God's plan. And then he said, oh, and that's just the first three chapters. And in all honesty, when I think about hard questions... I get in 2019 from believers or from skeptics, like the hard, honest questions about the Christian faith, questions about marriage, questions about homosexuality, questions about gender and gender roles and racism and caring for refugees and abortion and politics and suffering, basically any topic that when your family member brought it up at Thanksgiving, you wanted to put your head in your mashed potatoes. Okay, any question across all those topics, the really hard, honest questions. When I answer them, I always have to start in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. They are in that way the most relevant chapters of your Bible in 2019. And primarily, beyond all of that, they tell us who God is. The single, all-powerful, all-creator God. And he created the heavens and he created the earth out of nothing. Ex nihilo, that's the Latin phrase, out of nothing. 
that God, right from the beginning, is not just a general higher power. He's not just a spiritual authority that the majority of the world would claim to. A God with all different kinds of names. He's not just a God in general. He is the self-revealed creator God who makes himself known. Theologian John Frame says this, quote, there's going to be a lot of quotes today, I don't know why, it's on the, it's on the uh, screen. He asked, who then is God? Isn't that a great question? You ever wonder that? Anyone ever ask you that? Who is God? He writes this, he is Yahweh, the Lord, the controller of all nature and history, the supreme authority for all his creation, the one who is inescapably present to all creatures for blessing and or cursing. He is transcendent, not in the sense of being far from the creation or inaccessible to the human mind, but in the sense that he rules all things. Therefore, there is no contradiction between his transcendence and his imminence, for his universal rule brings his power, knowledge, and goodness to bear everywhere at every time, to every creature. This is God. And what we read in Genesis chapter 2 is God's creation of man and woman. And there was a very unique aspect of human creation that separates them from every other kind of creation. They were created in God's image, the imago Dei, which has massive implications for all kinds of things, but most notably that God's image is reflected upon every human that has ever existed. Every human that's ever existed across history has been made in the image of God. And so they are the only ones in creation that have innate desires and attributes that other creatures do not possess, including the acknowledgement of and desire for peace and hope and love and joy and etc. And this is why all people from your secular Unitarians meeting down the road to religious Muslims and everywhere in between desire peace. We've all been made in the image of God. And there is inherent value in being human, which is why we should treat all humans as inherently valuable. Because that is what they are from the unborn to the refugee and everywhere in between. Because you know who doesn't care about peace? Lions. All right? Like there's no uh, tribunals happening in the Sahara right now between lions and elephants and gazelles being like, can't we just get along out here? It's a little fierce. No, they don't care. You know what lions care about? Food and sleep. And you might, like, that might almost be attractive to you. Like, that'd be kind of nice, right? Like just food and sleep. But no, you've been created in the image of God. Lions were not. You care about more than that, whether or not you want to or not. And God makes out of the dust of the ground man, and then he makes woman out of the side of man, and then he places them in a garden with this cultural mandate to have dominion over the earth, to be fruitful and multiply. And here's the point. In the garden, there was shalom. There was peace. There was harmony between God and man between man and woman, and then we all become witness to the first marriage in creation, a man and his wife becoming one flesh in perfect peace. Can you imagine? Reflecting the perfect community of the triune God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfect human harmony for eternity. And here's a big question that an intelligent reader will ask of Genesis chapter 2. If God is all good and God is all powerful, 
Why would he create a world with a potential for sin? For potential of that shalom being broken. Which leads to other questions. Does, does, does God give up control of his creation when he creates man? I mean, how can God create a world without sin, but with a possibility of sin, without being responsible for that sin? You with me? Some hard questions. And here's what the Bible clearly tells us. God always has been, and God always is, in sovereign control over all things. And he is showing his glory in creating a world where we are decision-making creatures who are held responsible for those decisions. That we're not just robots. That God's not just pulling all the strings like we have no choice. We have choices every single day. We have choices, big and small. You can call it free will. I have some issues with that phrase, but we can talk about that later. So let's just call it for now free decision-makers who are held responsible. That's what we are. And yet we live under the sovereign control of God. That both those things are clear and true in the Bible. And we see it here in Genesis 2. There is peace. There is shalom. And yet, did you notice the one verse that showed a little foreshadowing? God telling Adam, The tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Which brings us to number two. The fall of shalom. You guys know the story well. You get to Genesis 3. There's a serpent tempting Eve. We'll pick it up in verse 4 to read the verse 7. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Peace was held until a direct action disrupted it. The action of man and woman choosing glory of self over the glory of God. That is the foundation of the first sin, and that's the foundation of every sin that has occurred ever since, including our sin. It's not about the apple. It's about making the decision to say, I'm going to choose my way over God's way. I'm going to choose my glory over God's glory. And it includes doing the things we should not and includes not doing the things we should. But all in all, sin killed shalom. Fracturing creation. And from this moment in Genesis 3, the relationship between God and man was changed. The relationship between man and woman was changed. And mortality became reality. Uh, God said, you will surely die the day you eat of it. And he was not kidding. There was a spiritual death, which is far more important than a physical death, in that moment. There was separation between God and man. And then there was the eventual reality of physical death and the curse was put on all mankind. I want to read the curses. What's the curse? Let's keep going in Genesis. We're going to skip down to verses 16 to 19. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. 
Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Perfect peace ended in Genesis 3, and the universal need for peace began in the midst of chaos. Here's what that means. Every ache and pain you feel, including all the guys who played flag football yesterday, every time your soul aches for something and hurts, that heaviness you feel in your mind and your heart, our longing that there's got to be something better than this, that this is not the way it should be, any kind of evil we have in this world from our own hearts to what we see in the headlines, do we see the natural disasters, All this stems from Genesis chapter 3. And the image of God was not erased completely, but it was tarnished. And in sin, men and women lose control of the ability to make peace for themselves. That is what was lost. Not just peace, but the ability to make peace. And they can try. What did Adam and Eve, what was the first thing they did? The first thing they did when they bit of the apple and their eyes were open, what did they do right away? They said, "Uh uh-oh, we're naked. And they sewed fig leaves together to cover their nakedness, which is also to cover their shame, and to begin to hide from God. Listen, we can try. We can try to make peace for ourselves. We can try to make up for it. We all are in this case where we will try different ways to make up for the fact that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. We do so mentally, we do so physically, we do so emotionally. We try a lot of different ways to fill the void, to address the chaos, and it always falls short. It's always us just sewing together some fig leaves, sending us into hiding out of shame. And I want us to sit here for a little bit. Taste the bitterness of Genesis chapter 3. And you might be thinking, Pastor, this is, this is a little much for Thanksgiving weekend. Stage looks great. We're singing Christmas songs. It's a little bit of a Debbie Downer. And yet, this is the reality of Chaos. This is why there is a need for peace. And for some reason, we can, especially in a Christmas season, put all our hope in a season to make up for the chaos of the world. Like, let's all just take a break from the chaos and act like there's peace for five weeks, and then the day after Christmas, we go right back to it. But this is not just individual pain, although for many in this room, that is much. This is systemic pain that our world feels. This is generational pain that our families feel. This is racial tension. This is natural disasters. This is global wars. This is trouble around the Thanksgiving table. We cannot pursue true, lasting peace until we first understand why we need it in the first place. 
And for Adam and for Eve and the human race that came from them, the consequences were seen nearly instantly. If you kept reading in your Bible, you get to Genesis 4. What's in Genesis 4? The first murder in the history of mankind. And it was between brothers. You get to Genesis 6, and there was so much worldwide evil that there was a flood and then renewal. But even in that renewal, right away, sin still remained amongst Noah and his descendants. In Genesis chapter 6, you have the earliest indication of racial bias in the curse of Ham. Have you read Genesis 6? The curse of Ham says you will be a servant to your brothers and your people will be servants to their peoples. And that single passage has been used to justify slavery for 2,000 years. And it's insane. Christian slaveholders saying, you know, it's not ideal, but it's right there in Genesis 6. The African peoples should be serving the whites it's just, you know, it's, it's part of the fall, yes, but, you know, it's the way God designed the world. And it's insane. And it's to our shame that you had all races and you still have races that consider another race inferior simply because of the color of their skin. This is chaos. This is a result of the fall. Systemic racism that is still prevalent all around us. And indeed, most of us, if we're honest, are just a little blind to it. But you read through Genesis, man, it's a mess. You go through the patriarchs, you got Abraham, you got Isaac, you got Jacob, you got Joseph. There is just clear brokenness. If you just said, I know nothing about Christianity, I'm just going to read the Bible, and I'm going to start with the first book, you would get through that first book and be like, oh my gosh, these people are broken. Things are messed up all throughout, because this is the reality of chaos. This is a loss of shalom. This is why there's a need for peace. And again, we all experience it on some level, some more than others, every single day. This is why we advent. This is why we anticipate. This is why we long for something more. And if you just walk through the Bible from Genesis 3 on, the rest of the whole Bible is a single story. A single story of how a sovereign God is redeeming and restoring his fallen creation. And this is the story that we're caught up in. And this is the story that hinges on a promise. And the first sign of that promise is also found, surprise, in Genesis chapter 3. God gave out three curses, not two. You might have thought you skipped the most important verses. Did not skip it. Genesis 3, 14 and 15. Read with me. This is what he first said to the serpent before he spoke to the woman and to the man. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Number three, the redemption of Shalom. We're going to be digging deeper into this promise throughout this Advent season. This Messiah that gets pulled through the storyline of the Bible leading up to this little town called Bethlehem. But for this morning, I just want to give us a glimpse, just a glimpse of this first promise. God says to the serpent, the visual manifestation of the enemy, the ruler of this fallen world, Satan, he says, I will put enmity, that means hate, I will put hate between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here's the most amazing part about Genesis 3. 
Even though the perfect fellowship between God and man is fractured because of sin, God does not check out. Let's be honest, he could have. Like that Bible could have ended in Genesis 3. And we would not blame God. He's God. He does what he wants. He doesn't answer to anyone. He clearly communicated his word, and his word was clearly broken. He had every right to walk away. But he doesn't. Why? For all the hard questions that we face in this world, that we have to go to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, how about the question, why doesn't God just walk away? Here's the most scandalous answer of all. Because he doesn't. That's the scandalous nature of grace. It's free. It's totally unmerited. God does not check out simply because he chooses not to. And instead, in the midst of chaos, he plants a promise. And he talks about a seed. And he gives us the slightest spark of redemption in the midst of judgment that will cast a long shadow across the scriptures. This offspring, this seed of a woman will get carried forward throughout the whole Old Testament through to Noah and to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Judah, through to Moses, to Joshua, to David, and Solomon, and all the way eventually leading to this little town in Bethlehem where a baby was born and his name was Jesus. Jesus, the one who arrived in the first advent in God's perfect timing. Jesus, the one whose heel would be bruised by standing in the place of judgment for men and women who rebelled against him and was crucified on the cross. Jesus, the one who would be raised from the grave three days later by the Father and in doing so bruised the head of Satan, giving a death knell to death itself, crushing his power and rescuing for all who would put their faith in him. You see, just as Adam's action disrupted the shalom, in the garden, to bring about chaos. So now Jesus' action disrupts the chaos and reinstates the shalom for those who believe in him. John Calvin sums it up far better than me in a short phrase. said, quote, Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to destroy. A disruptive action on the cross where in a moment the pathway of temptation and of rebellion and of shame and of judgment gets reversed and another pathway emerges where where Jesus takes our shame and he nails it to the cross and he restores us by his grace. Church, this is why we celebrate Advent. And my question is, is this true for you this morning? Can you say that your hope is not in yourself to make peace Not in your ability to live a good life and hope things work out in the end or just do a bunch of good things, but that your hope is 100% wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is fully, freely offered and freely given, but it must be fully received. And when you receive this gift of salvation, you enter into this current place of redemptive history that theologians have called the already not yet. That is where we are in the church today. The already not yet. Let me explain that. That we reflect and we live in the truth that God has already sent his son to die on the cross. To pay the price for the sin that we deserved. To redeem us back to himself. But he has not yet returned to restore all of creation And we still live in the fallenness of a broken world. But we are citizens of another world. To put it another way, God has already delivered us from spiritual death through Christ. But he has not yet delivered us from physical death 
This is the already, not yet. And so in this place in redemptive history, in this dark and fallen world, the church is called to do something. We are called to stand as a beacon of light in the age of the already, not yet, where there is a community of shalom in the midst of a broken world. We don't do it perfectly. My gosh, we don't do it perfectly. Sin still remains in us. We still feel the brokenness. But the church should be an image of what's to come. A people where the walls of hostility have been broken down by the blood of the cross. And in this way, we don't over-romanticize life here. We don't go, everything's just great all the time. But we live with a certain level of optimism that nobody else has. Because we can acknowledge, while chaos remains, we cling to the promise of peace that hovers over it all. And we got work to do. The church is called to be peacemakers. Church, we got work to do. A.W. Tozer said it like this, quote on the screen, The fall of man has created a perpetual crisis. It will last until sin has been put down and Christ reigns over a redeemed and restored world. Until that time, the earth remains a disaster area and its inhabitants live in a state of extraordinary emergency. To me, it has always been difficult to understand those evangelical Christians who insist upon living in the crisis as if no crisis existed. This is the world we're in. And so let's not put this false hope in the peace of a Christmas season that will never deliver. It's better to walk in the real world, to taste the bitterness of it, and understand we're on a pathway to a far better story. And as peacemakers, we're called to live well in this season of Advent, to live well in the already, not yet. I ask you, where can you give of yourself this season? Where can you put off a reweaving of the shalom that has been lost? Where can that grace that you have received flow through you to others, to help others, to reach others? And I encourage us, because this season's going to go fast. It always does, every single year. It's December 1st, and it's going to go fast but with some intentionality. It's going to snow day, you're going to be inside anyway. Sit down with some intentionality. How can you make the most of your Advent this season? Where can you be generous? Where can you live open-handed? Where can you bless others? Where can you serve others' needs? Where can you love others in such a radical way that it's only a supernatural love working through you that this is possible? Where can you give of your story of how God saved you and sharing that faith with somebody who has not yet put their faith in him? And here's how we close. Because our confidence is so sure in this fourth and final point, the restoration of shalom. Hear me, we know the end of the story. We don't know when. We don't know what's going to happen until then. We don't know how everything's going to play out in our individual lives, in our lives as a church. But we know how it ends. We began this sermon in the first couple chapters of the Bible. And so we're going to end it in the final chapter, Revelation 22. Very end of your Bible. As I'm reading this and as we close, tell me if you hear anything familiar from the beginning. Revelation 22, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 and then 12 to 17. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, 
But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Skip down to verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the ones who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Shalom. This is the story of the Bible. Let those who are thirsty come. The creation of shalom, the fall of it, the redemption of it, and finally, the restoration of shalom. More is yet to come. Happy Advent. Let's pray.